Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Focused on Forward. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of talking with a man who's been there, he's done that, and Brock Bevel knows what he's talking about. It's important that we have this discussion that we're going to have today because the problem of addiction isn't going anywhere anytime soon, unfortunately. And because of that, what Brock's doing now is critically important. We're going to talk to him about his journey through life. We're going to talk to him about the podcast that he's a part of, how those are important, why those are important, and why the discussions that he's having on there are important to not only those who have gone through addiction, but also those who are struggling with it right here, right now. So Brock, thank you for being on Focused on Forward today. Man, thank you for having me, Tim. I love that intro. That was a good intro. Thank you, man. Oh, hey, thanks. Yeah, you know, I, I think the things that, you know, I've done some reading about you and the things that, that I've read about you and the things that I've seen about you, I am absolutely ecstatic to be able to have this conversation today because I think what you're doing and the journey that you've gone through in life, although there are some there are some suck parts to it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You, you've been through some stuff, brother. Uh, but uh, the, thing, the thing is, is that I love about your story is I'm talking to somebody who just didn't lay in the mud and say, you know what, uh, this is never going to get better. I love talking to people who have picked themselves up and who are pushing themselves forward in life. So let's talk about your story. Yeah, you know, if you don't mind, let me just back up two minutes from yeah, what you, you said. What's important is that we we understand the reason I'm doing what I'm doing um, is because 93,331 Americans died last year from overdose. And what, what people don't really understand is those are just numbers and, and the numbers are not accurate. They know 93,331 died, but they don't know all the people that that lived through Narcan, Naloxone, that they, they, I mean, I, I deal with people on a daily basis. They've been brought back to life eight, nine, ten times. So if we're going to talk about addiction, man, I appreciate no better show, Tim, to talk to you. I love it. Yeah. You know what's interesting? My story, um, I'm glad I came out at the end of it okay. It did suck along the way, but it prepared me for what I'm doing today. The suck that I'm going through today because it's hard, man. It's hard to open up a dialogue and talk about fentanyl. It's hard to talk about opioids because people say it's a choice, right? If you get cancer, it's not a choice to get cancer, but it is a choice to put drugs and alcohol in your body. And it is a choice that you ultimately have to overdose. So I appreciate you bringing me on. I'm super jacked up. I'm passionate about this, um, but I wasn't always an addict, right? Growing up, I grew up in suburban Scottsdale, Arizona. 
eight okay. brothers and sisters, right? Big family, raised in a in a very strong church where we had some really ingrained spirituality in us. So much so that in in nineteen shoot, um, man, I'm I'm aging myself, but ninety one to ninety three. I served a mission for my church. I lived in South America for two years, you know, and when I got home, my goal was to get on with the police department. I played college football. I was done doing that. I had gotten married. I was ready to get that next step of my career. And backing up, I always wanted to be a police officer. Everybody asked me every, anytime they say, when did you know? Man, I knew when I was going through my dad's closet. And in the back, he had this police uniform. It was covered in plastic, you know? And I remember I ripped the plastic off when I saw that badge on the hat, old school hats, you know? And the in the badge, and I put it on, that thing was hanging like all the way down past my fingertips. But I remember looking in the mirror and I'm like, man, this is it. This is like superhero stuff right here, you know? And and even as a young kid, I was probably five, six, seven years old. And I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do in life. And so when I tested for the police department, I was completely unaware of what I was getting into. 500 and something people interviewed. Seven positions were available. Oh, wow. Now, I got lucky because I did speak fluent Spanish because I served a mission. That was, I mean, how many Caucasian people do you know that are police officers that speak fluent Spanish? It's a very, very small populace, right? Right, right. And so I was athletic. I passed the test. By the grace of God, I remember January something, they called me up and said, hey, man, uh, we're starting a police academy January 21st. Do you want to jump in and do it? And I'm like, I had like 11 days to turn my, my plumber work truck in. All my gear, I said, let's go. And, you know, from that point on, I, I wanted to save the world, Tim. My goal was to arrest all bad guys. And early on, I realized I hated patrol. I mean, I did not love going to barking dog calls, neighbor disputes, just, just dumb calls. I remember, I'll, I'll tell you kind of a funny one, Tim. I get a domestic violence call. Not that that's funny, but the end, end result is. Sure. Uh, some neighbors are living in an apartment. They're upstairs and they're like, hey, my neighbors are fighting again. I'm like, all right. As police officers, you know, you have to assess the situation before you knock on the door. And I remember my partner and I got to the door. We're listening. And I'm like, man, I'm not hearing pots and pans. I'm not hearing screaming and yelling. I'm not hearing a big fight. I'm hearing some ruckus, but I'm not hearing a fight. Well, I knock on the door. Guy comes out. He's sweating. He's in his underwear. No shirt on. I'm like, hey, brother, what's going on? You know, hey, your neighbor's called. They said there's some domestic going on. And he's like, brother, there is no domestic violence going on here. And I'm like, well, I am so sorry to interrupt you guys, but I have, is there anybody else in the house? He goes, yeah, my wife's in the back room. I said, hey, I can't leave until I have eyes on your wife, you know, People say they, they're not a domestic situation. I got to go check. Can you bring her out? So he brings her out. He's like, hey, hon, come here. And she's like so timid. She turns the corner. She's in full Minnie Mouse negligee with the Minnie Mouse ears on, right? And I'm like, brother, there is 
there is no fight going on here. We're out. And so, you know, no fight. No fight. Yeah. So, but you have to have that comedy, man. You got to have some fun. But I just realized early on, I wanted to rest dopers. I got the thrill out of taking dope out of guys' pockets, seizing large quantity of dope. I just loved it. Right. Okay. And there was two incidents that happened when I worked in the department. They were six, five to six months apart from each other that kind of solidified, um, kind of changed my path. I worked undercover. I worked narcotics. So I, I bought, sold a lot of dope, a lot of drugs. Okay. And I want to make sure that people understand the fentanyl and the opioid crisis was not going on when I was in active police, you know, I mean, it was heavy meth, it was heavy cocaine, it was marijuana, it was, it was heroin, those kind of things. Okay. But January or December 27, 2001, we try to make, a, the, the police department is doing a DUI task force, trying to make a traffic stop. Long story short, the guy will not pull over. Calls dispatch, says, listen, back your police officers off, I'm not pulling over. I cannot go back to jail. If you arrest me, this will be my fifth DUI. And you know what that means? That's a mandatory prison sentence. I'll never get out. I'm not going to jail. Well, he makes a fatal flaw and pulls into a cul-de-sac. And as he does, he tries to get out. We come in and do a felony stop on him, which means basically one car comes head on and the other two fan out. So he can't get out of this cul-de-sac. Mr. Jordan gets out of his vehicle decides to have a conversation. He's standing there. He's got a big jacket on. It's late at night, dark, tons of police officers. And we did every, and this is what I wish people would understand is like police officers are, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Exactly, right? yeah. And, and this guy forced us. He got out of his vehicle. We pepper sprayed him. We beanbagged him. We tased him. The canine bit him twice. Right, like all the use of force continued, we worked through before ultimately he got back into his vehicle, threw it in drive, and tried to run us over. Fortunately or unfortunately, my vehicle was the one that he was coming to crush. I was in the doorway, I opened fire, shot him twice, one in the chin, the second one followed up under the collarbone, shot and killed this guy two days after Christmas. And, and Tim, I remember. When he came out of the vehicle, I mean, they got him out and he's laying on the ground. I'm looking down at him, his face, you know, the aliens movie when they open up and they're like jaws yeah. open up. That's yeah. what his face looked like. I mean, I shot him with an AR-15 through a windshield right. and I was mad. I remember I was so pissed off thinking, dude, are you a father? Like two days after Christmas, what's going on in your life that you forced us? I mean, Tim, there's nothing we could have done. We used every single use of force sure. that we had, and he drove and used a, used a vehicle to try to get out of the way. Right. And so we had to kill him. And so I remember where it got real was about three months after that, I'm sitting in a deposition, me and my attorney, his mom, his sister, who was a dispatcher in a neighboring city, and the dad was sitting in there across the table depositions over she's like hey can i ask you a question off the record i'm like man this is like never good to have to answer a question to a mom right no but she's like yeah especially when there's a death involved but she asked me blake she looks me right in the eyes she says 
if you had a chance to do this again, to kill my son, knowing all the circumstances, would you do it? Oh, that's, that's a heavy deep, question. That's that's so heavy, right? And and I didn't take it lightly. I didn't just sweep you off. But I said, you know what? I would. I would do it again. And every time I would do it the same way because that's how I was trained. That's how I was taught. Right. right? You and, and if I didn't shoot him, he would have run us over and caused damage, physical damage to other officers on the scene. So... And, but but right there, Tim, it kind of started moving me, man. I'm like, what was it about this addiction that had this guy so wrapped up that he was willing to die for? Right. Okay. Fast forward about six months, street level information. I want everybody out there who listens to Tim's podcast to understand the best source of information, local prostitutes. Right. They have all the street level contact information. Tim, I know you're laughing, but it's so true, <laughs> right? Who else, who else is always on the streets? Who else always is involved in, you know? Well, you got me there. Yeah, street level, prostitutes, greatest information. But there's this one that kind of we use as a confidential informant and at a street level, but she tells us, hey, there's a deal going down where a mom is bringing her daughter in exchange for drugs. You know, we hear about it today. We hear about all the, the uh, sex stuff with children and, and there's, there's departments out there doing a great job, the slave trade and all that. But this lady was so wrapped up in addiction that she was bringing her 12 year old daughter to a scene to trade to a man for dope. Oh, now, man. Tim, are you a father? Do you have kids? I have three. Okay, so you understand at what level you would have to get to to trade out a kid for drugs for sex. I, I can't even wrap my head around that. You can't do it. You no. can't do it. Like, you'll die before that happens. Absolutely. So that's the level that this lady was at. And I'll, and I'll speed this story up so we can really get into the nuts and bolts. But sure. ultimately, we go to make it. We, we, she pulls in. The drug dealer comes down the road. The transaction starts happening. My partner and I come up. We infiltrate it. We make contact cover like you're supposed to do. Someone's contacting the driver. I'm contacting the doper. What's going on? Mom's like, I'm a victim to a crime. This guy wants sex for my daughter. Anyways, she ultimately throws her car into reverse. Runs. My, my partner standing at the front, gets his left foot caught. He falls over, runs over his back. Okay, breaks oh. his back. I'm in the back. My right foot's under the back tire. She, she rolls the tire on top of my foot. I go to snap out, breaks my ankle. I engage with my left leg. She runs over my left leg and blows my knee out. And, and what's crazy was she backed out. We draw down on her. We arrest her. She's in a vehicle. We're on foot. Both of us are jacked up. The adrenaline's going. But all through that, Tim, I'm like, what in the hell is it about this addiction that makes us do crazy? Well, I figured it out. I go to the doctor. My doctor's like, hey, you're, you have some severe injuries. I need to do some surgeries. After surgeries, they always prescribe you medication. Right. right? Yeah. Pain meds to help you process, move, move forward. Pain meds. So what do they do? He sits me down face to face. Tim, this is his statement. Brock. You're a cop. 
you'll never get hooked on these things. Hey, right there, that was like, okay, no problem. I got it. Well, I try to come back to the apartment. I come back for a little bit. Finally, the doctor says, hey, this guy is not fit for duty. He's a liability. If he gets in a fight and falls down a flight of stairs, he can't. He, his knee will blow out. If he gets in a foot pursuit, his knee may blow out. He's just not the guy for this job any longer. So what do they do? Medically retire me. Now, think about this, Tim. You're living a life like Nitro Circus every single day where right. it's just energy, excitement, the flow. You're arresting people. You're in and out of fights. You're getting in shootings. You're driving fast. And to the next day, your badge, your gun, and the keys of the facility, gone. Your team, your support network, gone. Now I'm home, young kids changing my baby's diapers, and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Right. So, so my life starts taking a, a deep detour, and I begin to self-medicate myself, okay? And not, not only do I self-medicate, I start making decisions that are life-altering, like sending text messages to other women trying to stir up relationships with other women under addiction, taking more opioids because I want to mask. I want to mask the pain because the more opioids I took, the better I felt. I was no longer mad at my guys for not coming to visit me. I was no longer upset with the department for getting rid of me, you know, and uh, Tim, that lasted 10 years, brother. That lasted 10 years. Wow. So I'm gonna let you talk. I just, I just, uh, shared you my secrets man go ahead no you're doing great so i have to ask you because you know we, we only do, we don't only talk about addiction on this show we don't only talk about the the effects of emotional health when things like this go down but there's also has to be a mental impact and how this affected you because some of the other things that you went through and I, and I read an excellent article uh written about you on in uh the blue magazine.com um Fantastic article, but in there I was talking about some of the things that you had gone through and 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 the how difficult it was for you to process some of these things. Could you go into that a little bit more and talk about some of these these particular incidents and how it affected you mentally, emotionally afterwards? So, are we talking as a child? Are we talking about which which portion we we talk? Well, let's talk. Let's talk about you as an adult. Let, let's talk about after. Uh, um, the, the child prostitution incident. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's basically what happened as I go home and I, and I'm retired and I'm, I'm sitting on my couch and I'm going through a struggle. So at that point in time, I just, I began to self-medicate. And when I say self-medicate is I'm abusing these opioids and I get right. to a point to where I lose my family. I, I, I divorce my wife, my kids, and I don't have a very good relationship because dad's making bad decisions. And I'm also, I have a buddy. I mean, listen, I was an undercover cop. I have a buddy that I'm giving my pills to, to take, to distribute. And then he's bringing me the proceeds from the pills. So what I hated and, and had disdain for is I started to turn into. Okay. And so you, t you talk about that physical, that physical switch, man. I, 
I could relate to what that lady was now going through at the extent that you'll go through for drugs. Okay. All right. And there was another incident as well. You, you talked about the incident with, with shooting the young man with the AR-15. And, you know, um, again, anytime there's a loss of life or, or a life has to be taken, there's, there's an impact on the shooter and whether there was a justified homicide or not, we were, you know, all that kind of stuff. And clearly you did all, you followed your training, you did what you were supposed to do. But what was the psychological processing of that for you? How did that affect you moving forward? You know, what was interesting, that's a good question. What was interesting was I knew that I did the right thing. I knew that the shooting was, was, um, perfect. I would say because the department investigated it, everybody came in and tried to find out where we went wrong and the shooting was good. But the problem is I began a little bit, about a year later, I started having nightmares. I started having the cold sweats. I started developing PTSD from that incident. Um, I hated walking around cars. I didn't want to walk behind cars. I was, I was waking up, um, and what was interesting about my shooting that I tell some people, but not really. Um, when I took the shot, it was almost like the Matrix movie. I mean, you like you like that kind of stuff. I know that, man. But but the psychological component of when you actually get involved in a shooting and you dispatch somebody, it was wild. I, I remember as soon as I pulled the trigger, everything slowed down. And I saw the round come out of the barrel. And I saw it spinning. I saw the projectory. I saw the smoke. I saw, it was it was honestly like a matrix that everything slowed down. It went through the windshield. It cracked the windshield. You know, like the the the, the cracking. Like a spider webbing, yeah. Spider web, yeah. Goes through, hits the guy. I mean, it was all slow motion. So those were the things that I kept reliving. It wasn't so much the fact that I took his life because I knew morally it was right but it would wake me up at night, right? Those scenes, how they would slow down. Sure. I would hear the thud. I would hear the noise. I would see the lights. I would hear the people in our helicopter screaming, hey, you guys got massive crossfire. Be careful. You're going to shoot somebody. So those were kind of the, the psychological warfare that I was going through. Okay. So these things that you went through, the, the psychological aspects of them and having to learn how to deal with them and, and process these things. Now, did you seek out therapy for those things or did you or, or is this something you learned to process on your own to be able to move forward? Yeah. So we, to be able to return to the department, you have to go through a psychological evaluation. I saw their psychologist, hated him. First moment I walked in. First question, I mean, the guy, like, honestly, Tim, it, it really matters when, when you're getting therapy that you have somebody that is culturally competent. And that means Agreed. somebody has to understand, right? I mean, come on, man. Oh, absolutely. You have to have somebody understand what you're going to, so at least be in a fight. At least in your life, know what it feels like to be hit in the face. And, and for me, this guy had never been involved. I don't know if he had trauma in his life. I don't know any of that, but I just knew walking in, I automatically put up this 12-foot wall saying, this guy's a tool. I'm not speaking to him. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. Why am I here? Right. So 
eventually I had to get clear through him. They, they sent me to somebody else. I had some, a couple of visits with them. And of course they're like, you're clear. You're ready to go back to work. But what they don't understand is police. And I'm going to say this, honestly, police officers are never honest when it comes to trauma. We just want to get back to work. Right. I'm okay. I'm fine. I can do this. Got it. I got it. Those are the three most scary words in the English dictionary. I got this because we don't No. Anytime you hear, I got this from somebody typically means that they are flying by the seat of their pants and they're hoping they got this. Mm. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) Okay. Well, yeah, you know, in in reading the, the article about uh, the things that you had gone through, that was the, the thing that went through my mind, you know, on everything that I was seeing, the things that you had gone through. Okay. Well, what was the mental psychological impact? How did, how did Brock respond to that? You know, what was the counseling sessions like, you know, so it's good to see that you did get some counseling, you're able to get some help, but now of course that didn't help you when it came time for your own addiction and the struggle of that addiction in 10 years. So many, you know, we're, we're not going to go through all the nuts and bolts of, of that. There's uh, if you want to, uh, read a little bit more about that. You guys are always welcome to go check out this amazing article I referenced just a moment ago. It's called the blue magazine.com. It was printed on August 4th uh, of 2021. The article is called the man with the iron will. And so uh, an ex cop's journey from addict to becoming a savior. And so uh, it's a really powerful article and it's really talks about a lot of the things that, that, that Brock's gone through. And there's even a little bit more information about the length of his his uh, recovery uh, and all these other things that he's gone through. But that's what I want to talk to you about at this point, is talking about how we got to the point of acknowledging that there was an, an addiction issue. What was the low? How did you realize that you needed to move forward? My low was walking into my bathroom and opening my cabinet up and seeing all my pill bottles in play, written on how many pills you got left, when was the refill, when did you get it? And then I remember taking a pill, shutting the cabinet, and that mirror shining into my bedroom, and I realized at that point that I was living way below my means. I was like, Brock, you're living in a crack house. And and as you know, selling a lot of drugs, uh, as an undercover cop, you see drug houses. They smell the same, they, they look the same, there's a negative, a, a demonic vibe in there. It's dark. And I'm like, bro, you got to change. So out of anger, this was, Tim, the biggest mistake in my recovery. Um, for me personally, I don't recommend this to anybody. It just worked for me. Opened the cabinet up, was just angry, dumped all those pills down the toilet and flushed it. And then I'm like, oh, my gosh, dumbest thing I could have done. Now I'm out of pills. I have no connection. I just got a refill. How do you go to your doctor and say, I just, I just went through 390 pills in a day? And I was Yeah, screwed. you don't. You don't. No. <laughs> and so right then, man, I made a decision, Brock. This is, this, you've, been, you've been longing. You've been begging God for this. You got it. Now you, now you got to go through it. All right. So you, you go through it. You're, you're experiencing uh, detox. You're going going through all the different stages you're there's physical uh, issues that come along with that. Um, uh, there's dehydration. There's, there's uh, 
diarrhea, there's vomiting, there's it, detox, it, it, you know, is, is not all what you guys see in movies uh, where somebody uh, sweats and shakes and is unhappy for a day or two. Uh, detox can be a very physically violent thing for the person to go through because they're trying to exercise basically a demon from their body. Let's just put it that way. They're trying to remove something unholy from themselves to get themselves moving forward. So with you, Brock, going through all of this, how long was this period of detox for you to where you woke? Because there's always that time where, where you're going through this. But then there's for many people, there's a there's a day where they wake up and they're like, I feel different. Something's something's changed. Something's different. How long was that period for you? Seven days. Seven days. Seven days. Of hell. Yeah. Of hell. Yeah. I felt like I was going to poop up my backbone. Like literally when you say I was defecating on myself, I was throwing up on myself. I was dry heaving so bad. I felt like my backbone was coming out my mouth. Like it was violent, man. And, and what I'm glad I went through it that way because I'm scared to death to use an opioid today because I, I'm so scared to go back to that moment. I don't know if I'm tough enough a second time around. I was, I was, that was 11 years ago, right? I was, a, I was a younger man and I'm telling you what, that right there, Tim, is why people do not want to get off opioids because the fear of that detox is scary and it's real. I believe that. I believe that wholeheartedly. So from what I understand, uh, you're what, uh, now 11 years clean? Almost 12, man. January 11th, I have 12 years. So let's go 11 and a half, right? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, brother. I'll, I'll give you a big applause for that. That's, yeah, a, that's a major thank accomplishment. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Since 1982, Vital Signs and Graphics has been helping professionals with all their image, logo, and design needs. Perhaps you're looking for signs and banners, truck and trailer lettering, business cards, brochures, or other image and marketing aids, Vital Signs and Graphics in-house design studio has you covered. From logos to apparel, start to finish, Vital Signs and Graphics has everything you need to look and feel professional. Call Rick at 231-652-3300. He'll get you noticed. And now back to Focused on Forward. So in that 11 and a half, almost 12 years, let's talk about what you've been doing since then and the ways that you've been reaching back out to the community and helping. Ah, thank you. A couple things. Let me just share. I started a recovery center up in Sholo, Arizona. I ran that for five and a half years. Loved it. It was great. Uh, but I realized I was missing the mark a little bit. Uh, it's really hard to run a recovery program and touch everybody. So about a year and a half, a year ago, my wife and I moved back down to the Phoenix area. Now I run a business called Chase the Vase, where I do some challenges with law enforcement, first responders, military, vets, Man, and it's basically, I'm putting you on a 30-day recovery journey. Um, I do a seven-day fight like David challenge where I'm just trying to give guys an opportunity to pivot. And the coolest thing I think I've done is I've just started a new um, movement, man. I, I want to call it a movement. It's called the Take 10 movement. I started off this episode telling you 93,331 people died. and and when we know what heals people. 
we heal people. Connections heal people. Rehabs don't heal people, right? It's connecting with guys like you and I. It really is. I had people in my journey that were instrumental in helping me stay and get sober. Those connections save us. So I'm offering, I'm asking people to take 10 minutes out of their day. 10 minutes. Tim, that's not a lot of time out of your day. No, I mean, it takes, I mean, 10 minutes and go contact via email, uh, phone call, face-to-face street contact with somebody that's going through it, someone that's homeless. So I'm doing a lot of street contacts right now going out, and I'm, I'm finding that the state of Arizona has a difficult road ahead of them to help these individuals. Let's just, that is as nice as I'm going to put it. And I think there's other states that are going through it as well. So are you still having any, any ties with the recovery center or is that? I, I do. Now I have more ties with different recovery center. De- depends on what that individual needs, right? If someone needs a 30 day, there's 30 days that I recommend here in Arizona. There's wilderness survival. There's the Vulcan Academy. There's just a lot of different recovery programs that I really uh, think were better than mine. You know, they're, they're individuals that are doing a really good job. Uh, there's map medication out there now that wasn't available when I started the uh, medical assisted treatment where they're, they're using some suboxone to help people detox where, man, that would have been a better process for me than having a cold turkey. So just little things like that. I'm, I'm getting smarter to be able to help people find the right path, but really what it comes down to is just stop, man. You just got to figure out a reason to stop. Okay, cool. All right. Now, and, and also another thing that you've started doing over the, the last 11 and a half to 12 years is, is doing what we're doing right now. You're doing podcasting and you have two separate podcasts. Tell us a little bit about each. Man, I am so blessed. I really, the first one is my own podcast called Chase the Vase, where I interviewed guys like you, Tim, man, just really good individuals that are, that are making a change in the world. Men, who, uh, first responders. I've had, I've had some of the, the dopest most incredible individuals. I've had uh, Navy SEALs, team leaders. I've had I've had psychologists, doctors, opioid experts. I mean, it's just some fun, some fun people. And then I do a second one called uh, the Agents of Recovery with a psychologist, a therapist in Utah named Blue Robinson, and former NFL quarterback and BYU standout Max Hall. The three of us have all experienced addiction. And the reason I started that one is I don't see many men podcasts that talk to men about change, about recovery. The women do such a good job, Tim, on this, but us oh, men you killing lack, it. killing it. And I, and right. that's what I'm like, where are the men at, man? Yeah. 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 I got, I got interviewed the other day by somebody uh, who wanted, who wanted to talk to me just for that reason, because I was a man promoting mental health because most of us men, we hide from our own mental health struggles and we, we don't want to talk about it because it's not manly. It's not, mm. you know, we don't see it as the, the manly thing to do to talk about where we struggle or where we're lacking, uh, you know. And so, you know, life has taught me that it's OK to talk about those things and, uh, you know, that there's there's strength in being able to talk about those things. And I like to think that if we can talk about mental health struggles. That also branches us off into uh, addiction struggles. That 
that branches us off into emotional struggles and all these different things. Um, because there's a stigma attached to all of these things, unfortunately. And men seem to be having such a hard time having these conversations that I think it's important what you're doing, especially with like, you know, you know, uh, chase the bases is awesome and important, but I love the fact that on agents of recovery, you guys are talking about men to men. Hey, you know, let's, let's step up, you know, come on y'all let's, let's do this. And I, and I love that approach. You know, now think about this. Think about the whole I can't talk about a thing within law enforcement community, first responders. Everything's such a damn secret. And now I'm saying, hey, I want to talk to you about your your past traumas, that molestation when you were eight years old. Oh, my gosh. Nobody wants to talk about that. But I can promise you once they open up, man, there is some deep healing that can happen. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, most of those guys have, have, you know, most of any guys really who've gone through anything in life have swallowed that so far down. It's so far repressed that they don't realize how it's affecting all these other aspects of their life, that it's affecting their personal relationships with friends and family. It's a real, it's affecting their, their personal relationships in, in marital relationships or, or, you know, it's affecting, you know, uh, your significant other, your partner in ways that, that you're not comprehending because you haven't gotten out of the forest to see the trees. And I think that's right. What you just said there, that there, there's some deep healing that can come. If you, you open up with those things, it's going to make those relationships stronger and better because you're going to start understanding yourself a little bit better. Amen, brother. Thank you. Well, well said. So I, I love what you're doing on both of these shows, Brock. I think it's a critically important uh, that we remove stigmas uh, on all these things because, you know, whereas here on my show, we talk about ways that people have overcome things. And yeah, we talked a little bit about your backstory, uh, you know, the, some of the things that you've gone through, but one of the things that we always try to focus on is how people are moving forward and the importance of, of moving forward in life. So with you, when you're talking to other people uh, about you, about your story, what is one of the lessons that you try to help them understand about the importance of moving forward? Oh, man. I just want them to know that there's people out there that have gone through it, that, they, that there is hope. That's the number one thing I lost in addiction was hope. I looked okay. up and I, I struggled with it. So if I can give you hope, if I can show you a way out, if I can demonstrate and walk, that, walk through you, or walk with you through it, then we're doing good things, Tim. But but they have to see a model. Every every behavior has to be modeled correctly. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Cool. All right. So I have two questions that I ask every single guest who's ever been on my show. Uh, so except for Terry, Terry somehow snuck out of it, but and she knows it. But we're good with that. Love you, Terry. Bring it uh, back, Terry. We need to get her on the show to ask her, though, someday. So I, yes. let's hear it, brother. <laughs> All right. So the first question is, looking back over the entirety of your journey, what's the single greatest lesson that you have learned? Mm, man. Redemption. There's redemption. And you, you, being at the bottom of the barrel, I could look up. And so... 
that right there for me is the biggest thing that I can, I can be redeemed. I can change and things get better. Awesome. I love that. I love hearing a good redemption story. I love hearing when people learn that they about their own self value and their worth. And that no matter what they've been through, that there is worth attached at the end. I love that. All right. And you know what? One one thing I I'm tough as hell. Cause that's one thing that I tell me, if you can overcome addiction, if you can overcome those physical withdrawals, you're a strong, you're strong mentally and physically. And I'm not, I'm not gloating or anything, but anybody that's overcome it will tell you that's, that's a takeaway. So thank you. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm good with that. All right. Second question, similar to the first one. Looking back over the entirety of your journey, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you have been given? Slow down. Slow down. Take your time. And enjoy this journey. You know, we, we always want immediate success. We all, want, we all want to stand out differently. And one of my best mentors told me, dude, slow down. You're doing the right thing. It'll happen. All right. That's good advice. Yeah, man. We're, I love it. We're in a uh, immediate gratification society. We want everything right here, right now. And I think that's really solid advice, reminding people to slow down. It will happen. Just got to slow down sometimes to yes, appreciate sir. it. All right, cool. So, Brock, make sure that people know where they can find out more about you, more about Chase the Vase, uh, more uh, about Agents of Recovery. Yeah, so Chase the Vase podcast and Agents of Recovery podcast on Apple, iTunes, all of those. You can you can get me on Facebook under Brock Bevel or Chase the Vase. Instagram, same tags, Chase the Vase, Brock Bevel. Uh, if you want to look at the Chase the Vase Challenge, that's what it's called, ChaseTheVaseChallenge.com. Or this one's kind of cool, the FightLikeDavid.com uh, backslash, um, what is it, Jumpstart. And then uh, you can just look at what we do. And, and really all we're trying to do is, is change the message. That stigma thing that you talk about, we're trying to break that. Awesome. Love it. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to make sure that we put all that information down in the show notes underneath. People will be able to, to find all that and check you out. And guys, check out Brock, because what you're seeing and hearing here is, is not just for show. This is for go. This is what Brock is. Uh, and I, I love it. This is the type of man he is. So, Brock, one more question for you before uh, we let you go today. In a moment of clarity, what's the best piece of advice that you can give someone who's struggling if they're hearing this in a moment of clarity? Look up. Look up and, and make the next right decision. All right. Very good. All right, guys, be sure to check out Brock Bevel on Chase the Vase and Agents of Recovery. Uh, these are two wonderful shows that are trying to do some good for humankind. And frankly, and after the last year and a half that we've had, we all need as much good and as much, as much grace as we can pass on to one another. So, Brock, thank you very much for your story, being willing to share it with us. And thank you for being on Focus on Forward. All right, guys, that's going to conclude us today. Have a good one, and we'll catch you on the, on the next episode. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter at podcastfof, through our Facebook page named Focused on Forward, or through email focusedonforward at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe, be kind, and be loving to one another. 
as you stay focused on Forward.